You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 14th day of May, 2011. I would like to once again urge all the listeners to check into CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos created by myself in the past, and links to other online independent media sources, like ParadigmShift.tv, that help to get the word out about this podcast and the work that we do at The Corbett Report. Now, as anyone who is listening to this on the 14th of May 2011 might realize, yes, the podcast, as I mentioned last week, has shifted from a Sunday delivery to a Saturday delivery. So I don't know what this will mean for your own personal schedule out there. But at any rate, from now on, you can expect new episodes of The Corbett Report on the website on Saturdays. But of course, that is of little relevance if you are actually subscribed to the RSS feeds, in which case this will be automatically delivered to your podcast podcatcher of choice every week, whenever it is released. I'd like to remind everyone that this is independent, listener-supported alternative media. It is completely free and completely commercial-free as well. So the only way to keep this type of media coming is to help support the people who are bringing it, not only at places like tragedyandhope.com or mediamonarchy.com or zeropointradio.com, but also at The Corbett Report. I need your help as well. So once again, I would like to thank everyone who has signed up to become a monthly subscriber to The Corbett Report. A small 100 yen per month donation is all you need to really, really, truly help support this podcast. And I cannot thank you enough to all of those people who have become subscribers. And of course, you can end your subscription at any time. There are no hassles. There's no, uh, there's no contract. There's nothing to sign. There's nothing whatsoever. It's just a voluntary donation that if you like the media that I'm putting out here on a regular basis, please help support it to keep it coming in the future and hopefully to help me expand what I'm doing even further. And without further ado, we have a very big episode today, so let's get straight into it. Welcome, my friends, to episode 186 of The Corbett Report, The Philosophy of Freedom, State of Nature. Now, if the listeners will cast their mind back to episode 183 of this podcast, Five Lectures That Will Blow Your Mind, you might recall that in my commentary on the Isaiah Berlin lecture on Jean-Jacques Rousseau, I did say that that type of commentary was something that I was especially interested in and was interested in getting more and more into in the podcast in the future. So philosophy of freedom will be a new recurring theme in this podcast, like we have other ones like Requiem for the Suicided or Lessons in Resistance. Well, the philosophy of freedom series in this podcast will delve into some of the philosophical foundations and roots and justifications and thinking about what we are actually striving towards, which is liberty, very broadly defined. But what does that mean, and how can we possibly achieve it if we don't even understand its philosophical grounding, if we don't understand what we mean when we use that word, or what it means to actually institute a system that will uphold and protect liberty? Having said that, in the grand Corbett Report tradition of biting off way more than could possibly be chewed by one individual in one podcast at any one time, today as well we're dealing with a philosophical theme, an idea that is so large and spans so many thousands of years that this podcast episode cannot 
possibly encapsulate all of the ins and outs, all of the various thinkers who have thought about this subject, or even looking into any one thinker too deeply. And I would not like people to take this episode as some sort of totalizing, uh, total theory about the, today's topic. It's really meant as a starting point for discussion and thinking about today's subject. It is not meant to be the be-all and end-all. So I hope people keep that in mind and will not uh, feel too uh, compelled to come in to, to, uh, to contact me, to, to ream me out for not including one of your favorite thinkers or not delving deeply into a subject. Again, we are only skimming off the surface of thousands of years of thought and trying to present an overall picture that tells a very important story in this fundamental philosophy of freedom. And today, the as you can see from the episode title, we are examining the state of nature. Now, for anyone who is familiar with political philosophy, the term state of nature will no doubt be familiar to you, as it is a very common con concept in modern political philosophy. And actually, it can be traced back at least as far as Thomas Aquinas, but was perhaps best known and best popularized by Thomas Hobbes in his, uh, in his eminent work, Leviathan, in which he argued and talked about the way that the political order came out of what he called the, the state of nature. And that is the way in which this concept is usually read, that there is a natural state for human beings and that somehow something happens to cause a political order to come about. And sometimes this is seen as a good thing, sometimes it is seen as a bad thing, sometimes it is seen ambivalently. But many different theorists over the centuries have talked about and thought about this problem. What is human nature and how does that bring about a political order? It's a very important thing to understand because really this idea goes to the very heart of the idea of governmental legitimacy i.e. how do the governments that rule over us or presume to set laws by which we must abide, well, how do they derive their legitimacy? How do they actually get the, uh, the right or the, the grant or the permission to rule over us? Have we ever actually given them that right? Well, these are very important questions, and as you can see, go right to the heart of the fundamental question about governments and how they are instituted among men, as the philosophical tradition would hold, but among humans, I guess we can say, in our modern uh, political context. So it's a very uh, well-defined and well-used phrase, but today I'm going to be expanding it a little bit because I think that there's something, there's a way that we can look at this that actually expands it out and really goes back to the fundamental precepts and foundations of Western philosophy itself. And in that regard, I think we can take a look at the way that nature itself, the, the nature of the universe, the beginnings of, of na the natural world, and the various conceptions of that in, in the ancient world, also play into this idea of state of nature, because they also give rise to conceptions of a political order. So today we're going to be looking at the state of nature, as in what is the natural world, how, what does it consist of, and, and then also the human nature, and how that plays into the ways that we come together to form society. A very, very, very broad topic, as I'm sure you will no doubt grant. So actually today I would like to start by taking a listen to what I think is a, a very informative and very good overview of this subject from a course on political, economic, and social thought at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, delivered by Professor Emeritus uh, of Political Science, Charles Anderson. And this lecture, as with all of the lectures I'm going to cite today and, and 
demonstrate to you are available for free online. And once again, of course, I urge you to go and take a look at the documentation list for today's episode so that you can explore these lectures in their entirety. And even as in this lecture, the series of lectures that it comes from, uh, this is one of a series of 54 lectures uh, that were delivered in 2008-2009. So, so a lot of lectures uh, here that expand on this topic and really go uh, across thousands of years. But right now, let's listen to this introduction to the idea of uh, the foundation of a society and why it's important to look at the philosophical roots for how we come together as a society. The second kind of myth to look for in one of these complete philosophies when we get to the level of politics and economics and society is the foundation myth, the question of how the community began and how government began. The Jewish people, for example, speak of Moses as the great leader who covenants with God and leads the people out of Egypt. We Americans speak of the authors of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitutional convention in setting our foundations. And it's funny, you know, we, we, we have a view of them that in the, in the perspective of the world is very strange of our foundations. Because if I were to ask you, for example, to justify your belief in equality of opportunity, many of you would have said at the second level of analysis, not well, equality is a good thing because of some theory of human nature. You would have said, well, because it's in the Constitution. And if I were to ask you the third question, well, what's so terrific about the Constitution? I wonder what you would have said. And I think you would have said something like, well, there were these, what, they, you would have begun to tell a story. And you would have said, well, there were these very wise men who met in Philadelphia. And we have always believed this. And I wonder if you could quite get away from making a little bit of a myth out of it as you developed your justification for why the Constitution is a good thing and shouldn't be rewritten and, and so forth down the line. So our foundation myths aren't terribly different than the foundation myths of the ancient people will be speaking, and it's just worth observing how this hasn't really changed much in time. But they're terribly important because a foundation myth is part of a, an answer to a specific question of morality and politics and economics. It's a partial question to the question of why a political order is legitimate. We use that word quite a bit in this course. Legitimate is the political version of the word moral. It asks the question not why an individual's actions are right, but why a form of government is right and therefore ought to be obeyed voluntarily. So if, you were to ask, if I were to ask you the question, why do you obey the law? The first answer you might give me might be, well, you know, you go to jail if you don't. Uh, the second answer might be an elaborate description. Well, I believe in government of the people and we share in the making of the law. And, and so you give me a theory of legitimacy. You tell me why you obey the law voluntarily on the ground that you accept the foundation myth, you accept the principles, you accept the philosophy of the society. Now, each society will have a different foundation myth, which helps to buttress its legitimacy, helps to give a reason to the people a reason to society for why its government ought to be endorsed as rightful and proper. So taking that as the context for today's episode, today we will try to at least trace the contours of the arc of this idea of the foundational mythology and how it has changed from era to era and civilization to civilization and political order to political order. 
And I hesitate to use the, the phrase development of this idea because I don't think that this is a teleological process necessarily in the way that Hegel thought that history was heading in a certain direction and ultimately would would end up in something called the absolute idea, which of course is manifest in the absolute state. An idea that, of course, Marx picked up on and has become part of Marxist thought. I don't think history is necessarily teleological, although that's not really the point of today's episode. So I hesitate to use the word the development of this idea. I don't think we're necessarily getting closer to the truth with our successive chain of foundational mythologies. And it's also important to stress that the idea mythology in this uh, philosophical context doesn't necessarily have the pejorative connotations that it does when we use it in our everyday speech. When we talk about a myth, a mythological civilization, a mythology, we usually tend to use it in a dismissive sense, as in there is the truth, there is the scientific objective reality, and then there is the mythology. But in this philosophical context, as you would hear if you listen to the rest of that lecture by Professor Anderson, and I hope you do, you'll you'll discover that, in fact, science, of course, is also a type of mythology, and it attempts to explain the world in terms of a system of laws and, and things that can be derived from nature in the exact same way, or not in the exact same way, but in a an analogous way as, say, religion or other types of narrative attempt to make sense of the uh, universe and try to discover certain rules or laws about the, the way the universe works or the way that God works in the universe or what have you. So again, mythology here is not necessarily used in a pejorative sense. So when we talk about the foundational mythology of our civilization, well, it's not necessarily unhealthy. And I would argue it's even a healthy thing for each civilization to have a foundational mythology. It's it's necessary for us to, to understand the uh, both our human nature and also the nature of the universe in such a way that we can place ourselves into some sort of political context and have some sort of justification or understanding for the world around us. It doesn't necessarily mean that any particular mythology is necessarily right or wrong, but is right or wrong for that civilization in that time. And in that regard, we're going to have to start taking a look at the ways that different foundational mythologies have been used to give rise to different political orders or perhaps, to put it another way, the way that different political orders have given rise to various foundational mythologies. I'm not sure which direction the causal relationship is or if it's always the same. Again, perhaps that's too deep an analysis for today's episode. But in order to start doing this, let's take this out of the realm of abstract philosophizing and put it into some actual historical contexts. And we'll start doing that by listening to an excerpt a little bit further on in that same lecture from Professor Anderson at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, in which he starts to talk about the ancient Egyptian empire and how that political order was founded on a foundational mythology that had a very, well, I guess you could almost say animistic view of nature and that therefore political reality was in itself just another part, another outgrowth, another extension of nature itself. There was no foundation of the society because the society was part of nature. So in order to start understanding how that works, let's take a listen to, uh, once again, to Professor Anderson, this time talking about ancient Egypt. Well, let's look at some of these these mythic civilizations that contrast so much with Greece and just see briefly what their political theory, their philosophy uh, looked like. And we'll just touch on them briefly because they're all very different, but just get a very general idea of how how they they, they saw things. 
It's well to begin with ancient Egypt, which of course was the, the greatest empire of the pre-modern pre age or the pre-Western age. As you know, it was a highly centralized monarchy you know, and a river kingdom. Um, it built great works, public engineering works, but most importantly, it was a highly centralized political system that dominated its region probably for longer than any government in the history of the world. As an intact regime, it lasted at least 4,000 years, and at the height of its power, when it was in its grand, it, even its grandeur itself lasted 2,800 years, very few regimes can make that statement. We consider the United States an old country because it has survived 200 years. Now, the Egyptians had an interesting view of the universe. They thought the universe was like a saucer, and the heavens were an inverted saucer, and it might have been held up by pillars. We're not quite sure. Um, in the east was the land of the sun's birth. In the west was the region of death. Um, the creation myth is interesting. As we've said, the sun, the sun god creates the universe, but is helped by two other gods, the air god and the moisture god, who give birth to the earth and the sky. So there's a little bit of an elaborate creation myth there. But note what happens. The world begins with an act of will. Something, see, it's not the Big Bang. It's not an impersonal force. Somebody decides to create the will, the world. And in this case, it's the sun god. Now, there, that's typical of a mythic explanation. There's a personal being that's operating there. Now, as the sun god creates the universe, and here we move from the theory of reality to the theory of politics and government. I won't take you through the theory of human nature, because frankly, we don't know that much about it. We, the, the, the sun god creates the universe, so the sun god creates the state. Government to the ancient Egyptian was a part of nature. It wills as the gods will. And the gods may be whimsical, they may be benevolent, they may be malevolent. Um, but so may rulers. You know, the, the gods may will earthquakes, the er gods may will good times or bad times, but so may the leaders of the state. And to put this another way, the Egyptians believed the world was made out of one substance. And they didn't really distinguish between gods, people, and inanimate objects. We do. Modern, even in our complex modern Judeo-Christian scientific community, we have three compartments, one for gods, one for scientific objects, and one for pe willing people. And they're, they're fairly distinct from one another. Now, you, know, you, you, you have a clear sense of what it is, the difference between a subject and an object, in the sense that a subject is someone who can act, think, will, that you can interact with. An object is something like a table or a desk. And you make a very sharp distinction between these two categories of being. But the Egyptians didn't. To the Egyptians, things flowed together. So that if you can put yourself inside of their mind and just see for an instant how an Egyptian must have seen the world in which gods, willing creatures, and what you consider inanimate objects all kind of are mixed up together. They all have the same characteristics. So that the, the, the king is at once a willing person, but also a god, and also sort of a fixture, a part of nature. And on the other hand, the Nile River is a physical thing, but it has a personality and a will, and it's a kind of a god. 
And people, uh, you know, so that both people become objects and, and objects become like people for the Egyptians in ways that we can barely understand. Now, what perplexes us, what follows from this is, is a view of nature in which all nature is pretty much the same. So for example, in the royal tombs of Egypt, you could lay out food for the dead because the dead had to eat like anybody else. But see, you could put out real bread or you could put out a wooden, wooden image of bread or you could just write the word bread on the wall and theoretically it would all come out pretty much the same because those things were in a sense interchangeable. The, the distinctions that we make were not the distinctions that the Egyptians had made. Now the king, the pharaoh, the son of the sun god, um, then becomes, in a sense, well, the, the legitimacy of the regime rests on the sense that politics derives from the order of the universe. You, you obey, you respect the king because he's part of what is true about the whole world. He is as inevitable as light and darkness. He is part of God's will. He, I mean, the king and the pharaoh and the ruler is just there. And one has a, well, I shouldn't even use the word duty yet to obey him. One obeys him simply because he, he is there. Now notice the root metaphor in this. Politics is like nature. Politics is the same as nature. You can understand politics if you understand nature. The king, everything comes from the sun god, so does the pharaoh. So then for the ancient Egyptians, the political order was in no way different than the natural order. It was the same thing, in the exact same way that the sun rose in the morning, traveled across the sky and set at night, or the same way that the, the Nile River flooded and made agriculture possible along its banks. Well, in the exact same way, there was the pharaoh, and he was the head of the society. There was the priest class, there were the laborers. They simply existed in that state, and it was not to be questioned. It could not even be conceived of being a question as to why the ruler was ruling. It was simply the natural order. But let's skip ahead a couple of millennia to come to a completely different civilization, the Greek civilization, which, of course, is pretty much the foundation of Western civilization as we know it. And it was in Greece that we saw, for the first time in recorded human history, a very radically different conception of a political order, something that had not been tried to that point, at least not as that we know of, not in recorded history, and that is the idea of direct democracy. So a very, very different conception of the political order from what we found in times past with the, well, monarchical type system of, uh, of yore with the pharaohs or whoever in various different civilizations. So the question is, how did this new political order arise and what was its foundational mythology? Well, we're going to skip over, as I said, vast swaths of history and vastly important thinkers today. So once again, please don't uh, take it as an offense if I skip over a particularly important person, because I know I'm skipping over many. But we will skip over, for example, uh, the incredibly important thinkers like uh, Pythagoras and Socrates and Plato to arrive at Aristotle who um, was really the person who, who set forth the ideas that, that became the foundation of Western logic and philosophy for the next millennia and a half at least, and uh, is still someone who I think every student of philosophy has to wrestle with at some point in order to even really begin to engage in philosophy of any 
serious type. So we turn to Aristotle and his extremely important idea of nature and also logic and reason and how that gives rise or not necessarily gives rise, but entails the political order that w that existed in his time. And in order to start understanding that, we're once again going to turn to a lecture, this time from someone very different. We're going to turn to a lecture from Stephen B. Smith, and a lecture delivered in a Yale course called Introduction to Political Philosophy. Once again, of course, I'm going to provide the link, so go to the documentation section to look at all of the lectures in this series. And this time, there are 24 lectures, ranging from, uh, once again, from ancient Greece all the way up to uh, modern American democracy. So, uh, again, an extremely interesting course with many, many different lectures of very valuable information. But we're going to turn to a Lecture 7 today on Aristotle's politics to start examining the ideas that Aristotle brought to the table in the examination of politics and the political order. And in this case, we're going to look at something that's not necessarily fundamentally different than the Egyptian conception in the sense that there is still a natural order which is in some sense not necessarily developing a political order but in, in fact entails that political order, encapsulates that political order. So that all begins from Aristotle's observation, his rather famous observation, that man is the political animal. What does that mean? We are the political animal. Aristotle states his reasons succinctly, maybe too succinctly, on the third page of the politics, where he remarks that every city or every polis exists by nature. And he goes on to infer from this that man is what he calls the zoon politicon. The, the political animal, the polis animal. And his reasoning here, brief as it is, is worth following. Let me just quote him. That man, he says, is much more a political animal than any kind of bee or herd animal is clear. Why is it clear? For we assert, he says, nature does nothing in vain, and man alone among the animals has speech. While other species, he notes, may have voice, may have sounds and be able to distinguish pleasure and pain, speech, logos is his word for it. Man has logos, reason or speech, the word can mean either, is more than the ability simply to distinguish pleasure and pain. He goes on, but logos, he writes, serves to reveal the advantageous and the harmful, and hence, he writes, the just and the unjust. For it is peculiar to man as compared to other animals that he alone has a perception of good and bad, just and unjust, and other things. In other words, he seems to be saying that it is speech or reason, logos, that is able to both distinguish and create certain moral categories, certain important moral categories that we live by, the advantageous, the harmful, the just and unjust in things of this sort that constitute, as he says, a family and a polis. But that's Aristotle. In what sense, we could ask ourselves, 
and I think you probably will be asking in your sections, in what sense is the city by nature? And in what sense are we political animals by nature? Aristotle appears to give two different accounts in the opening pages of the book that you might pay attention to. In the literal opening, he gives what looks like a kind of natural history of the polis. He seems there to be a kind of anthropologist writing a, a natural history. The polis is natural in the sense that it has grown out of smaller and lesser forms of human association. First comes the family, then an association of families in a tribe, then an a further association in a village, and then you might say an association of villages that create a polis or a city. The polis is natural in the sense that it is an outgrowth, the most developed form of, of human association in the way that one used to see in natural history museums, these kind of uh, biological you know, charts of human development from you know, these uh, you know, lesser you know, forms of uh, life all, all the way up to you know, civilization in some way. But there is, and that is part of Aristotle's argument, but there is a, a second sense for him, and in some ways a more important sense in which he says the polis is by nature, it is natural. The city is natural in that it allows human beings to achieve and perfect what he calls their telos, that is to say their end, their purpose. We are political animals, he says, because participation in the life of the city is necessary for the achievement of human excellence, for the achievement of our well-being. A person who is without a city, he says, who is apolis, without a city, must either be a beast or a god, that is to say, below humanity or above it. Our political nature is our essential characteristic because only by participating in political life do we achieve, can we acquire the excellences or the virtues, as he says, that, are, that make us what we are, that fulfill our telos or fulfill our, our perfection. So when Aristotle says that man is a political animal by nature, he is, he is doing more than simply asserting just a truism uh, or just a, some, some platitude. I mean, in many ways he is advancing uh, a philosophic postulate of great scope and power, although the full development of the thesis is only left deeply embedded. It doesn't fully develop it in this work or in, in saying this. In saying that man is political by nature, Note that he is not saying, although he is sometimes taken to be saying this, that he is not saying that there is some kind of biologically implanted desire or impulse that we have or share that leads us to engage in political life. That is to say, we do not, he wants to say, engage in politics to say it's natural for us to do so is not to say we engage in political life spontaneously and avidly as you might say spiders spin webs or ants build ant hills. He is not a kind of sociobiologist of politics, although he sometimes 
appears this way when he says that man is the political animal. In, in some ways, to the contrary, he says man is political because, not because we have some biological impulse or instinct that drives us to participate in politics, but he says because we are possessed of the power of speech. It is speech that makes us political. Speech or reason in many ways far from determining our behavior in some kind of, uh, again, in some kind of deterministic biological sense, speech or reason gives us a kind of freedom, latitude, an area of discretion in our behavior not available to other species. It is a reason or speech, not instinct, that makes us political. So then somewhat like the ancient Egyptians who believed that the natural order simply presupposed the political order, well, we also see that with Aristotle in a way, although he introduces the idea of human reason as being the defining characteristic which necessitates, or at least entails, encapsulates within itself that idea of the political order among humans. Humans are naturally political animals because they have logos, they have reason, they have words, they have speech, they have logic. So, therefore, they are political animals, and therefore they live in polis, they live in a political society. So, the obvious question becomes, what does Aristotle proscribe as the type of political order that man should follow based on this? Interestingly enough, there is no set prescription from Aristotle. He does differentiate between different types of rule, rule by the one, rule by the few, and rule by the many, but says there can be good and bad versions of either, for or of all three. For example, the good version of rule by the one could be called a benevolent monarchy, but the evil version or the bad version of rule by the one would be tyranny. So there is no one specific way that Aristotle says that the political order should be. He says there are good and bad ways of doing it, and it really depends on the way that the society organizes itself. Also, interestingly, Aristotle was a proponent, advocate of the idea of slavery. And perhaps slavery should not be read in the context in which we mean it today, but the slavery that he talked about is the that there were uh, a certain order of humans that were designed or were naturally meant to be ruled by others, that they were their will was uh, to be to be dominated by the will of others. So there was a type of uh, natural order of slavery in Aristotle's politics, and that's uh, very interesting for. For people uh, in our modern Western civilization, steeped as it is in liberal democracy, small l, small d, having nothing to do with capital L liberalism or capital D Democrats or anything of the sort, we have to really expunge our minds of the, the ways in which the, this political vocabulary has been taken over in the past century, century and a half. It has nothing to do with the left-right spectrum as we understand it today. Liberal democracy really has quite a different meaning. But uh, at any rate, uh, so being steeped in liberal democratic egalitarianism, we take it as self-evident that all men and women are created equal, but that uh, certainly was not the case for Aristotle and for many other thinkers in his wake, uh, and before him for that matter. But uh, let's move on now, and uh, once again, we are moving in sweeping gestures today, so let's sweep over a millennium and a, a millennium and a half or so, or 
maybe even a little bit more, and sweep over such uh, absolutely fundamentally important thinkers as St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and uh, Machiavelli even. And let's land at the doorstep of Thomas Hobbes, an extremely, extremely influential person in the history of political philosophy. In fact, I dare say that it would be impossible to study political philosophy at least from the perspective of Western civilization, without studying Thomas Hobbes and his uh, most famous work, Leviathan, which uh, has to be understood in the context of the time in which it was written. And that context is that it was written during the English Civil War of the 1640s and was published the year after the Civil War ended. So it has to be read in that context, and Thomas Hobbes has to be understood as a thinker who was uh, very disturbed uh, by the the implications of civil war, the civil war that he was living through at the time that he was writing this, and the implication that it meant that governments, which had been taken for granted as being a type of absolute, a type of something that was quite stable and it existed for a long time, was suddenly in a very great state of flux. And this was something very disturbing, obviously, to someone of a, a smallsy conservative type mindset who wanted to see some sort of order and wanted to understand how it is that uh, that even though the monarch may come and go and the royal family may change, the, the idea of the, the state of the political order can still be maintained. And this was something of the uh, the, the idea of what uh, Hobbes was setting out to do in writing his, his book Leviathan. And basically he started an incredibly important strain of political philosophy that we now know of as social contract theory, which was uh, then taken up and developed later on by Locke and uh, Rousseau, which we'll get into later. But Hobbes began the formulation by coming up with, as we've, uh, as is the topic of today, the idea of the state of nature, a perhaps mythical. Uh, there's no sense in which he necessarily meant this to be in historical time that we could actually talk about in historical terms, but a mythical idea of a time before any type of government was instituted, Look and, and then examining human nature to determine why it was that humans banded together to bring about a state, a government, a sovereign, a ruler over them, and why people subject themselves to that authority. So let's, uh, let's flesh this out a little bit by uh, taking a listen to an explication of uh, Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan and his social contract theory and its impl- implications. And to do that, we're going to turn to an audio book, a reading of Bertrand Russell's The History of Western Philosophy, published in 1945. And Bertrand Russell should uh, ring some bells, perhaps some alarm bells for listeners who know a little bit about him and his uh, scientific dictatorship leanings. But at any rate, we will he was a, a formidable philosopher and someone quite important in the history of philosophy, and he wrote uh, this primer on Western philosophy. And in, I think this clip very well encapsulates sort of the general gist of Hobbes and the idea of social contract theory. So let's listen to uh, Bertrand Russell and an unknown reader reading from Bertrand Russell's The History of Western Philosophy on Thomas Hobbes, The State of Nature and Social Contract Theory. Unlike most defenders of despotic government, Hobbes holds that all men are naturally equal. In a state of nature, before there is any government, every man desires to preserve his own liberty, but to acquire dominion over others. Both these desires are dictated by the impulse to self-preservation. From their conflict arises a war of all against all, which makes life nasty, brutish, and short. In a state of nature, there is no property, no justice or injustice. 
There is only war, and force and fraud are in war the two cardinal virtues. The second part tells how men escape from these evils by combining into communities, each subject to a central authority. This is represented as happening by means of a social contract. It is supposed that a number of people come together and agree to choose a sovereign or a sovereign body which shall exercise authority over them and put an end to the universal war. I do not think this covenant, as Hobbes usually calls it, is thought of as a definite historical event. It is certainly irrelevant to the argument to think of it as such. It is an explanatory myth used to explain why men submit and should submit to the limitations on personal freedom entailed in submission to authority. The purpose of the restraint men put upon themselves, says Hobbes, is self-preservation from the universal war resulting from our love of liberty for ourselves and of dominion over others. Hobbes considers the question why men cannot cooperate like ants and bees. Bees in the same hive, he says, do not compete. They have no desire for honor, and they do not use reason to criticize the government. Their agreement is natural, but that of men can only be artificial by covenant. The covenant must confer power on one man or one assembly, since otherwise it cannot be enforced. Covenants without the sword are but words. President Wilson unfortunately forgot this. The covenant is not, as afterwards in Locke and Rousseau, between the citizens and the ruling power. It is a covenant made by the citizens with each other to obey such ruling power as the majority shall choose. When they have chosen, their political power is at an end. The minority is as much bound as the majority, since the covenant was to obey the government chosen by the majority. When the government has been chosen, the citizens lose all rights except such as the government may find it expedient to grant. There is no right of rebellion because the ruler is not bound by any contract, whereas the subjects are. A multitude so united is called a commonwealth. This Leviathan is a mortal god. Hobbes prefers monarchy, but all his abstract arguments are equally applicable to all forms of government in which there is one supreme authority not limited by the legal rights of other bodies. He could tolerate Parliament alone, but not a system in which governmental power is shared between King and Parliament. This is the exact antithesis to the views of Locke and Montesquieu. The English Civil War occurred, says Hobbes, because power was divided between King, Lords and Commons. The supreme power, whether a man or an assembly, is called the Sovereign. The powers of the Sovereign in Hobbes's system are unlimited. He has the right of censorship over all expression of opinion. It is assumed that his main interest is the preservation of internal peace, and that therefore he will not use the power of censorship to suppress truth, for a doctrine repugnant to peace cannot be true, a singularly pragmatist view. The laws of property are to be entirely subject to the sovereign, for in a state of nature there is no property, and therefore property is created by government, which may control its creation as it pleases. It is admitted that the sovereign may be despotic, but even the worst despotism is better than anarchy. Moreover, in many points the interests of the sovereign are identical with those of his subjects. He is richer if they are richer, safer if they are law-abiding, and so on. Rebellion is wrong, both because it usually fails, and because if it succeeds, it sets a bad example and teaches others to rebel. The Aristotelian distinction between tyranny and monarchy is rejected. A tyranny, according to Hobbes, is merely a monarchy that the speaker happens to dislike. Various reasons are given for preferring government by a monarch to government by an assembly. 
It is admitted that the monarch will usually follow his private interest when it conflicts with that of the public, but so will an assembly. A monarch may have favourites, but so may every member of an assembly. Therefore, the total number of favourites is likely to be fewer under a monarchy. A monarch can hear advice from anybody secretly. An assembly can only hear advice from its own members, and that publicly. In an assembly, the chance absence of some may cause a different party to obtain the majority and thus produce a change of policy. Moreover, if the assembly is divided against itself, the result may be civil war. For all these reasons, Hobbes concludes a monarchy is best. Well, as Russell quite rightly notes at the start of that clip, it is rather remarkable, if not unique, that Thomas Hobbes begins from the proposition that all men are created equal and ends up at the idea of complete tyrannical despotic rule as the answer. It uh, is something of a leap for us, having come after Locke and Rousseau and other thinkers like that, to, to arrive at that type of conclusion. So it is interesting to see how he gets there, that basically people are equal, therefore they are in a constant war, and uh, life for people in such a state of nature is nasty, brutish, and short. And of course, the famous phrase from Leviathan is uh, the war of all against all, that that's what life basically amounts to in this type of state of nature. And that's why people sacrifice their liberty to gain the security of the state, the Leviathan. And uh, they basically, once people have done that and have signed that uh, social contract, so to speak, uh, they have forfeited their right to have any say whatsoever in the matter, and the monarch then becomes the despotic ruler. Now, it's important to understand that there were limits to the idea of that uh, that subscription, the, the, the signing of that social contract in Hobbes's theory, basically because people are doing this in order to secure their own life and to ensure that they are safe, well, if the ruler is unable to preserve that security and protect the citizens, then the citizenry does have the right to rebel and resist. So there is that to say for it. So what we're really seeing here is the foundations, the philosophical foundations of the constitutional monarchy and that idea which was emerging out of the feudal dark ages and the idea of the divine right of kings to rule over everyone and into something of a system where there is a absolute monarch, but someone who has still nonetheless to do and fulfill certain obligations in order for the people to put their their trust and to basically consign themselves into that monarchy, into that state. And make no bones about it, he really did think monarchy was the best system, not parliamentarianism, but monarchy itself. Well, extremely interesting, and, uh, and from that we now turn to a, a thinker that came shortly after Hobbes, and one that will no doubt be familiar to probably most listeners of this podcast, if not directly, then through his political influence. And we'll come to that shortly, but let's turn to John Locke. Locke basically takes Hobbes's ideas and runs with them. He starts to go in directions that Hobbes did not, and he starts from the assumption that that people are basically free and that they only consign themselves to this uh, social contract with the state in order to secure their life, liberty, and property. And perhaps that is now starting to ring some bells from some of the American listeners who have gone through some form of civics class in the last few decades, assuming they have that anymore. 
Well, let's uh, let's get straight into an actual lecture about Locke and his role and what his uh, his second treatise on government was all about. And in order to do that, we will turn once again to a course from Yale. Now, let's have a look at the second treatise and uh, the major themes what he's uh, uh, engaging. Like Hobbes, he begins with the statement, we are all born equal and he has free. Free and equal. But as we will see, he draws a very different conclusion than Hobbes did, or by and large different conclusion. And then he does agree with Locke that we need um, uh, a common superior. Uh, a a sovereign, a superior is necessary to avoid um, uh, the state of war. Then he develops a fascinating theory of property, what we have to deal with. Uh, and then he makes uh, this path-breaking argument um, that uh, uh, what we need is a rule by majority. He does not quite identify what that, that majority is, right? This is not popular sovereignty yet, but the idea of rule by majority for the first time is formulated by John Locke. And acceptance of authority can be done only by consent. And what is needed, and this is the very big contribution of Locke, a separation of power, checks and balances, right? This is what is completely missing in Hobbes. And he's making this path-breaking um, uh, argument. So, we are all born free and equal. Let me speak to this a little. Well, what is political power? And he defines these three elements of political power, right? Well, uh, this is uh, uh, the right to make law. There is also execution of law, and there is also politics means uh, the defense of the commonwealth against outside enemies. There are these three functions, right, uh, politics uh, is serving. And this will be very important in his sort of divisions of powers uh, as such. Now, uh, well, if we want to understand where political power, what political power is, we have to see at the origins of political power and to try to understand why on earth people from the state of nature where they were free and equal move into civil society where they surrender some of their freedom and we'll, we will see we'll surrender some of their equality. So, uh, what is the origins of this uh, uh, equality? Well, the first argument is very much counter Hobbes, right? Men all are all made by God, uh, the omnipotent, right? And we are his property, a kind of theological argument. And we are not be, have not been created for the pleasures of one another. So there should not be any man who is a superior, right? By principle, right? Because we are free, right? The, Locke is a liberal, right? Hobbes is a conservative. So what we are experiencing now, right, is the transition of philosophy from conservatism to liberalism, right? And liberalism, of course, will emphasize particularly freedom is the primary 
value. And in the state of nature, he said, we were all governed by reason. And that actually sort of, because we are all reasonable, we are born reasonable. We are born to be able to be rational, right? And we should be able, right, to understand that we are not supposed to harm each other. You see, this is a very different argument what, what we have seen uh, 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 on, from Hobbes um, on Tuesday, right? Uh, Hobbes said that we are actually learning morality uh, out by interacting with others who are desiring the same stuff what we do, we are learning it from struggle, right? It does not assume that this comes out of our rationality, that we are reasonable and by nature good. He does assume that we are reasonable, therefore why on earth we should not know that we should respect others? Well, but, and this then is where Locke comes the closest to converge uh, uh, with uh, Hobbes. Well, there is, on the other hand, a danger that there, there will be a war. And uh, in order to avoid war, this is why we will subject ourselves uh, to an authority and leave the state of nature. Uh, uh, but he also makes a claim, just to distance himself from Hobbes. He said, that's not that the state of nature is necessarily war, right? We have to make a distinction between the state of war and state of nature. Because in the state of nature, we are good and reasonable, but nevertheless, uh, it, uh, uh, it can turn into a state of war, and that's why we will have to join civil society um, and accept uh, an authority. Well, and now comes again a very big difference. So he accepts the danger of war, he lived in times of war, and he accepts that we need an authority because um, of this. Uh, now, uh, but, and, and now it comes the big differences, well, uh, we, we subject ourselves to uh, authority uh, of others, but this has, be, has to be done by consent, right? Uh, those who are, who are accepting a sovereign have to consent uh, to their uh, subjugation to authority. Uh, and the, the last citation is also extremely important, right? Freedom of man under government is to have a standing rule of liberty, right? Come on to everyone of that society and made by a legislative power erected in it, right? So the legislative power, now this is the source of sovereign, is somehow in a proper way constituted, right? This was not a problem, really, for uh, Hobbes, not much, right? He could see that there will be simply conferring uh, sovereignty to a single king. Now, Locke is very interested how the sovereign, the source of power to pass legislation is being constituted. And again, he's emphasizing, which was not in Hobbes, but is important, is standing rules to assure liberty, right? Not simply survival, right? Though we know Hobbes had it a more complex way. But liberty is the major issue, uh, what we are uh, uh, 
seeking for. Well, and then he comes with an interesting idea. Why do we submit ourselves to authority and seek protections for our liberty? Because we want to protect our property. That's the role of the public authority to protect property. It's a very realistic and important assumption. A question in which he and Karl Marx would probably agree. What is the role of the government? to guarantee the sacredness of private property. <laughs> hmm, governments are constituted among men in order to secure life, liberty, and property. Hmm, the pursuit of happiness? Hmm, I wonder, wonder where uh, Jefferson got that. Well, yes, in case you're wondering what the political fallout of Locke's thinking was, well, just as Hobbes was sort of the philosophical underpinnings and foundations for constitutional monarchism, Locke turned out to be the philosophical underpinnings for well, for America, and anyone who's studied Jefferson and the writing of the Declaration of Independence will know that Jefferson was greatly influenced by Locke, as well as Montesquieu and other sources, but mainly Locke. And, uh, and so there you go, Locke's ideas basically turned into the United States of America, and the foundations of it in the very noble ideas of Thomas Jefferson, which from the very beginning were opposed by the royalists and uh, like Alexander Hamilton and those of that ilk. But that's perhaps for a future edition of the Freedom uh, Philosophy of Freedom uh, series in this podcast. And rest assured, there will be many more editions in this series. But there you go. So there is Locke, there is liberalism with a small l, the idea of liberty being the key, that peoples are fundamentally free, that they have inalienable, inalienable rights, and that they only uh, put themselves under subjection to any type of government in order to secure their property and their life, of course, which is a subsection of their property. Well, again, this is all uh, very interesting, and it basically brings us to, to the types of points that we often talk about on this podcast. And if I were to end the podcast here... We could pretend that we could just uh, scrap what I said earlier about history not having a teleological aim, and we could pretend that history's great arc was the development of this idea of human liberty, because it seems we've gone from the pharaohs and the absolute monarchism that couldn't even be questioned back in ancient Egypt, through the idea of human reason in Aristotle, to the idea of constitutional monarchism in Hobbes, to suddenly the full flowering of human liberty in Locke, and then the foundation of the United States of America, and... Let's dust our hands, and there we go. There's the end of history. Unfortunately, however, that is most certainly not the end of the story. And as I say, we can't really see the development of the idea of human liberty as a straightforward, linear, or even teleological process. There are many twists and turns, and things, uh, ideas come up, and, and all sorts of things happen that one would never really expect if one were writing this as some sort of script instead of following it as the course of history. So let's turn next to another thinker who has been profoundly uh, important in the history of political philosophy, but who, well, maybe took things in a different direction, although starting out from similar ideas. And we're talking now about Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who listeners will remember Isaiah Berlin was talking about back in episode 183 of this podcast. And at that time, it left off basically sounding like Rousseau was perhaps a subscriber to the Corbett Report. He believed that human liberty was an absolute essential part of human nature. And uh, as other thinkers, for example, Aristotle had talked about human nature being logos and the ability to reason. Well, Rousseau basically said that human nature was freedom, that freedom and humanity 
are pretty much the same thing. And if you go back and listen to episode 183 again, you can hear that part of the Berlin lecture where he delivers the memorable phrase in summary of Rousseau that basically for uh, Rousseau to say that a man is free and a man is a man is basically the same thing. That freedom and liberty is absolutely fundamental to human nature because humans have free will and the ability to choose. And that is liberty. When we have the ability to choose our course, then we are free, then we are human. And that sounds like a radically powerful idea on which to rest a philosophy of freedom. But as I warned back in episode 183, for people who had only listened to that short six or seven minute clip from episode 183 of the Isaiah Berlin lecture, might have thought that that lecture was going in a certain direction, but trust me, it wasn't. And I think we're now ready to hear a little bit more from that Isaiah Berlin lecture, where we discover why Rousseau's idea that liberty is essential to human nature actually ends up in a type of tyranny. If a man, if your problem is, how shall a man be at once free and yet in chains? Then you say, well, but if the chains are not imposed upon him, if the chains are not something which is bound by some external force, if the chains are something which he chooses himself because it is an expression of his nature, if the chains are something which he generates from within him as an inner ideal, if it is what he above all wants in the world, then the chains aren't chains. A man who is self-chained is not a prisoner. And so Rousseau ultimately says, man is everywhere born free, is born free, and yet he's everywhere in chains. Well, what sort of chains? If there are the chains of convention, if there are the chains of the tyrant, if there are the chains of other people who want to use you for their own ends, then of course these are chains, and you must fight and you must struggle, and nothing must stand in the way of the great battle for individual self-assertion and freedom. But if the chains are chains of your own making, if the chains are simply the rules which you, with your own inner reason, or because of the grace which pours in while you lead the simple life, or because of the voice of conscience, or the voice of God, or the voice of nature, which are all referred to by Rousseau as if they were almost the same thing, if the trains are simply rules, the very obedience to which is the most freest, strongest, most spontaneous expression of your own inner nature, then the trains no longer bind you. Self-control is not control. Self-control is freedom. And so Rousseau gradually um, progresses towards this peculiar idea that what is wanted is men who want to be connected with each other in the way in which the state connects them. The original chains are some form of coercion which the tyrant used to employ in order to force you to do his will. And it is this which poets have been so wicked, wickedly, um, it is this which poets have so wickedly crowned with their garlands. It is this which writers have so fulsomely and so immorally tried to conceal by the encomia which they have paid to mere force, to mere authority. But what is wanted is something very really different. What is wanted, I quote Rousseau again, is the surrender of each individual with all his rights to the whole community. If you surrender yourself to the whole community, then how can you not be free? For who curses you? Not X, not Y, not this man, not that man, not this institution, not that institution. It is the state which curses you. But what is the state? The state is you and others such as you, all seeking your common good. And there is for Rousseau a common good. For if there were not something which is the common good of the whole society, 
which doesn't conflict with individual goods, if there weren't such things, then the question, how shall we live, what shall we do, what shall we, a group of men together, do, would become meaningless, and that cannot possibly be allowed. Consequently, Rousseau develops the notion of the general will, but from the notion, the harmless notion of a contract, which after all is a semi-commercial affair, which after all is merely a kind of undertaking voluntarily entered into, and I suppose ultimately revocable, by which human beings come together and agree to do certain things which will uh, lead to their common happiness, but which, if it leads to their common misery, they can of course abandon, from the notion of a social contract as a perfectly voluntary act on the part of individuals who remain individual and who pursue each his own good, you gradually in Rousseau get the notion of the general will as almost the personified willing of a large superpersonal entity, of something called the state, which is no longer the crushing Leviathan of Hobbes, but which is now something like a team, something like a church, some kind of unity in diversity, something which is a greater than I, something in which I think my personality only in order to find it again. It's, it, there is a kind of mysterious moment at which he mystically passes from the notion of a lot of individuals in voluntary free relations to each other, each pursuing his own good, to the notion of submitting to something which is greater than myself, which is myself and yet greater than myself, the whole, the com community. The steps by which he reaches it are peculiar and worth examining for a moment. I say to myself that there are certain things which I desire, and if I'm stopped from having them, then I'm, I'm not free. And this is the worst thing which can befall me. I then say to myself, what is it that I desire? I desire the satisfaction of my nature. Well, if I'm wise, and if I employ reason, then I discover in what the satisfaction lies. The true satisfaction of any one man cannot clash with the true satisfaction of any other man, for if um, it clashed, nature would not be harmonious, and one truth would collide with another, which is logically impossible. Now, uh, it may be that other men are trying to frustrate me. Why are they trying to frustrate me? If I know that I am right, if I know that what I seek is the true good, then people who oppose me must in some way be in error about what it is that they seek. No doubt they think they are seeking the good, they seek their own liberty, but they are seeking it along the wrong path. Therefore, I have a right to prevent them. In virtue of what have I right this, this right to prevent them? Not because I want something which they don't want. Not because I am superior to them. Not because I am stronger than they are. Not even because I am wiser than they are. For they are human beings with immortal souls, and Rousseau passionately believed in equality. It is because if they knew what they wanted, they would seek what I seek. The fact that they don't know doesn't mean that they don't really know. It is the word real, which is really the treacherous word here. To what Rousseau really wishes to convey is that every man is potentially good. Nobody can be altogether bad. If they allowed the natural goodness to well out from them, then they would want what is right. Though the fact they don't want it merely means that they don't understand their own nature. But the nature is there. To say that a man, for Rousseau, to say that a man wants what is bad, although potentially he wants what is good, is the same as to say that in some secret part of himself, with his real self, if he were himself, if he were as he ought to be, if he were his true self, then he would seek the good. And from that it is but a small step to saying there is a sense in which he already seeks this good, but doesn't know it. It's true that when he, if you ask him what it is he wants, he may enunciate some very evil purpose. But the true man inside him, the immortal soul, that which if only he allowed nature to penetrate his breast, if only he lived the right kind of life, 
he would realize was his true self. That self seeks something else. Now, I know what that true self seeks, for it must seek what I seek, for I know that what I am now is my own true self and not my own illusory self. It is this notion of the two selves which really operates in Rousseau's thought. And therefore, when I do, when I stop him from pursuing his evil ends, even when I put him in jail in order to uh, prevent him from causing damage to other good men, even if I execute him as an abandoned criminal, I do this not for utilitarian reasons, but in order to give happiness to others, not even for attributive reasons, in order to punish him for the evil that he does. I do it because that is what his own inner, better, more real self would have done if only he had allowed it to speak. And so I set myself up as the authority, not merely over my actions, but over his. And this is what is meant by the famous phrase in Rousseau about forcing men to be free. Sigh. And you thought that Eric Blair was just writing fiction, but no, along come the collectivists to tell us that, yes, all people are born equal and are, are born perfectly free and should remain so by subjecting themselves to the general will. And I'm the one who knows what the general will is, says Hitler and or Pol Pot and or Stalin and or Mao and or Lenin and or every other dictator who has come along in the wake of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his philosophy so-called. But look at that. Look at how he develops that from a very interesting and very uncontroversial set of initial conditions and suppositions that probably would have been taken pretty much for granted back in his day, that all people are born equal, that nature is harmonious, and that people are born with free will based on their ability to choose, which is based on their rationality, and rational people will just choose what is best for themselves, and and since nature is harmonious, what is best for ourselves will be best for everyone, and there will be no conflict or opposition once people realize or are made to realize what they really want. And, of course, people like Rousseau will come along and tell them what they should really want once they connect with their real selves. Well, I think we all know where that leads, and as I say, it is the excuse of every tyrant and dictator and tin pot uh, crackpot in the wake of Rousseau. So we know exactly what that collectivist bent and ilk is and the types of people it has inspired, and if it sounds like communism and or fascism to you, well, you're not the first person to note that. So we come from this idea and perspective of radical freedom and the that freedom is absolutely an integral part of human nature and we end up in the most perfect slavery and servitude to something called the general will well this is a very troubling state of affairs so how do we get ourselves out of it well and luckily, I suppose, or unluckily, depending on what uh, ideological framework you're coming from, Rousseau was an Enlightenment think thinker, but uh, he was writing in the 18th century, and along come the 19th century to become, begin the post-Enlightenment world. And what does that entail? Well, that entails the destruction of all of the suppositions and assumptions that had been taken for granted basically for the couple of millennia since Aristotle, including that most basic of all precepts and really something that had undergirded Western civilization for literally thousands of years, the idea that humans are fundamentally rational, fundamentally logical beings. If you'll remember, if you'll cast your mind back to Aristotle, that was his fundamental underlying assumption that what differentiated, differentiated humans from animals was logos, reason, the word, the ability to speak, the ability to rationalize. 
Well, what if that were not true? What if humans were not fundamentally rational creatures and were in fact driven by irrational, even unconscious desires of which they themselves don't even realize they have? Well, along comes the post-enlightenment world destroying the idea and the ideals of the pure light of reason guiding, guiding us towards Rousseau's collectivist nightmare. And, well, that basically shattered that myth and many others besides. So there were many, many thinkers coming along in the 19th century and leading up to the 20th century along those lines. But let's cut to the chase and let's cut to, well, someone who really most people would not think would not think of in a political philosophy context, and he probably would not have necessarily seen his own project in that vein. But nonetheless, it, we're looking today at the state of nature and how theories of human nature can lead to very different political philosophies. Well, here is someone well-known who postulated a theory of human nature that leads to some interesting philosophical political ramifications. But... At the core of Freud's explanation, the more interesting ideas is a, is a set of claims of immense intellectual importance. And the two main ones are this. The two main ones involve the existence of an unconscious, unconscious motivation, and the notion of unconscious dynamics or unconscious conflict, which lead to mental illnesses, dreams, slips of the tongue, and so on. The first idea, the idea of unconscious motivation, um, involves rejecting the claim that you know what you're doing. So suppose you fall in love with somebody, and you decide you want to marry them. And then somebody was asked to ask you why. And you'd say something like, well, I'm ready to get married at this stage of my life. I really love the person. The person is smart and attractive. I want to have kids, whatever. And maybe this is true. But a Freudian might say that even if this is your honest answer, you're not lying to anybody else. Still, um, there are desires and motivations that govern your behavior that you may not be aware of. Um, so, in fact, you might want to marry John um, because he reminds you of your father or because you want to get back at somebody for betraying you. Um, if somebody was to tell you this, you'd say, that's total nonsense. But that wouldn't deter a Freudian. A Freudian would say that these processes are unconscious. So, of course, you just don't know what's happening. So the radical idea here is you might not know what, why you do what you do. And this is something we accept for things like visual perception. We accept that you look around the world and you get sensations and you figure out there's a, there's a car, there's a tree, there's a person and you're just unconscious of how this happens. But it's unpleasant and kind of frightening that this could happen, that this could apply to things like why you're now studying at Yale, why you feel the way you do towards your friends, towards your family. Now, the marriage case is extreme, but Freud gives a lot of simpler examples where this sort of unconscious motivation might play a role. So, have you ever liked somebody or disliked them and not, not know why? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're, you're doing something or you're arguing for something or making a decision for reasons that you can't fully articulate? Have you ever forgotten somebody's name at exactly the wrong time? Have you ever called out the wrong name in the throes of passion? This is all 
the Freudian unconscious. The idea is that we do these things. These things are explained in terms of, of cognitive systems that we're not aware of. Now, all of this would be fine if your unconscious was a reasonable, rational computer. If your unconscious was really smart and looking out for your best interest. But according to Freud, that's not the way it works. According to Freud, there are three distinct processes going on in your head. And these are in violent internal conflict. And the way you act and the way you think are products not of a singular rational being, but of a set of conflicting creatures. And these three parts are the id, the ego, and the superego. And they emerge developmentally. The id, according to Freud, is present at birth. It's the animal part of the self. It wants to eat, drink, pee, poop, get warm, and have sexual satisfaction. It is outrageously stupid. It works on what Freud called the pleasure principle. It wants pleasure, and it wants it now. And that's, according to Freud, how a human begins. Pure id. Freud had this wonderful phrase, polymorphous perversity. This pure desire for pleasure. Now, unfortunately, life doesn't work like that. What you want isn't always what you get. And this leads to a set of reactions to cope with the fact that pleasure isn't always there when you want it. Either by planning how to satisfy your desires or planning how to suppress them. And this system is known as the ego or the self. And it works on um, the reality principle. And it, it, it works on the principle of trying to figure out how to make your way through the world, how to satisfy your pleasures, or in some cases, how to give up on them. And the ego, the emergence of the ego for Freud symbolizes the origin of consciousness. Finally, if this was all there was, it might be a simpler world. But Freud had a third component, that of the superego. And the superego is the internalized rules of parents and society. So what happens in the course of development is you're just trying to make your way through the world and satisfy your desires, but sometimes you're punished for them. Some desires are inappropriate, some actions are wrong, and you're punished for it. The idea is that you come out, you, you, you get in your head a superego, a conscience. In these movies, it would be like the little angel above your head that tells you when things are wrong. And basically, yourself, the ego, is in between the id and the superego. One thing to realize, I told you the id is outrageously stupid. It just says, oh, hungry, food, sex, oh, let's get warm, oh. The superego is also stupid. The superego, according to Freud, is not some brilliant moral philosopher telling you about right and wrong. The superego is like, you, you should be ashamed of yourself. That's disgusting. Stop doing that. Oh! And in between these two screaming creatures, one of, you, one of them telling you to seek out your desires, the other one telling you you should be ashamed of yourself, is you, is the ego. Now, according to Freud, most of this is unconscious. So we see, bubbling up to the top, we feel, we experience ourselves. And the driving of the id, the forces of the id and the forces of the superego are unconscious in that we cannot access them. We don't know. What, it's like the workings of our, of our kidneys or our stomachs. You, you can't introspect and find them 
Rather, they do their work without conscious knowledge. Well, Sigmund Freud was wrong about everything, but we may say that he was right about this because he didn't actually really come up with these ideas. These were ideas that were coalescing in philosophical circles in the 19th century, and people can go and read people like Nietzsche before he came along before Freud and codified a lot of these things, but Freud developed the, uh, the, uh, the terminology and basically... The, got the fame from it. So anyway, uh, but there you go. I mean, certainly the uh, enlightenment ideals of the logical, rational, reasoning human beings, it was utterly obliterated by these ideas of the unconscious drives. And uh, how does this play out politically? Well, people can turn back to an earlier episode of the Corbett Report where we met Edward Bernays, literally Freud's nephew, who in the United States propagated and pro- uh, proselytized Freud's work and used it for on Madison Avenue's behalf and on the United States government behalf in order to manipulate the population by manipulating their unconscious drives. And, well, he literally wrote the book on propaganda, and propaganda works. It worked then, it continues to work now, because it plays on the fact that people believe themselves to be fundamentally rational, logical creatures, but they are not. And they can be manipulated because they are unaware of those unconscious drives. So there you go. So there are definitely political ramifications to the discoveries of such things as the unconscious. And that puts uh, a very, very big roadblock in the path of the Enlightenment uh, ideals, which I guess is a good thing if they lead from Rousseau to people like Marx and into collectivism and tyranny of a even greater scale. So really, where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us, of course, in a, a giant state of flux, as we always are, because, well, we're, we're constantly looking for the answers. We're constantly trying to puzzle things through, and really, we're in not really fundamentally a different position than any philosophers of any previous generation who find themselves in a world very much in flux and are looking for answers. So here we are, and I would like to stress that Although we've been talking about people in the past, uh, certainly, absolutely, this idea of the state of nature, what is nature, and what are natural human drives, is every bit as much important and central to the discussions that we are having today as it has ever been. Ladies and gentlemen, people, we have to start thinking about root causes of behavior. We can't have these superstitious notions of reality. Religion wants us to believe that there's a good and an evil. This is easy to understand. It's easy to think that some people are just naturally good and naturally bad. This is a sad, sad worldview of humanity. And it's perpetuated and, con- and consolidated in our mind because the system that's been created continues this bad human tendency. It continues this need for self-perpetuation, self-preservation. Well, wait, wait, how can you so say there's even a bad? I thought there's no, I mean, bad, evil, same thing. I never said that evil didn't exist in the sense I'm redefining the terms, Alex. It's not bad or good. I'm giving it a quantitative nation to make it relevant. It is bad for people to beat each other up as far as I'm concerned. There is a quality distinction, but it's not evil. There's reasons behind it. When you say evil, you are implying a religious connotation that rejects behavioral conditioning of that person. And every single human being is born. There's no difference between a Gandhi baby and a Hitler baby. I hate to break it to you. It's all a matter of conditioning. Until you address this, nothing's going to change. The New World Order will continue. People at the top will be arrested. We'll have more false flag terrorist attacks. Society will break into a power consolidation. And even the, the rich elite will eventually suffer because they are completely out of line with mm-hmm. nature. 
And that's the entire point. You cannot have a system based on differential advantage in society and expect progress. And back to your other point, progress is not money. It's human creativity in science and technology. Everything you have, you owe to science and technology. Everything in your studio right now, the chair you're sitting on. How about the human mind? Of course it is, and that's the beauty of the human being. We have the ability to create something that the animal kingdom does not have, not to the extent that we... Well, B.F. Skinner said beyond good and evil, and then once you're beyond good and evil, then they say it's okay for them to do whatever they want. But but you're not saying that. Say that again. Skinner and people talked about beyond good and evil. And then beyond good and evil. Yes, yeah, so they can... Sure. So, so by, by, by any time we try to make a moral judgment, people say that's just religious. Or, 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 well, hold on. I mean, I know Brahma cattle. Brahma cattle are very aggressive genetically. They're some of the most dangerous type of cows to have. Uh, and uh, that is genetic. That's, that's not trained into the Brahma cows. And, are, are you, uh, and, I mean, we, and, and we know... Uh, uh, well, I mean, they've done all sorts of genetic studies. And, I mean, a lot of aggression is genetic. And, and, and then it can be taken down or it can be jacked up. Sure. But I think you'll tend to find, though, there's a lot of, a lot of discontinuous information, a lot of bad research that's gone into the geneticist ideologies. For example, the reason that these cattle might be violent has nothing to do with their genetics. It's the fact that they're born into this violent herd, and they condition those responses. This is the nature with all dogs. This is the nature, you know, there's a cliche of Rottweilers being mean. This isn't true. It just happens to be that the people that get these Rottweilers do so with a specific intent, and the statistics support that they're conditioned aberrantly. Well, I think that has. Well, I think that's a big part of it. But uh, a lot of people have nice, sweet pit bulls and Rottweilers, and one day it bites their child's face off. So (laughs) I don't understand that. Uh, We're going to skip this break too. A very interesting case in point of a debate that hinges on human nature, in fact, the nature of all animals. Well, very interesting debate indeed, and I'll let you follow the link to listen to the entire interview. I find it to be a fascinating, fascinating conversation, and I certainly fall on the side of Alex Jones on that one, not on the side of Peter Joseph and his Z movement. But at any rate, uh, I'll let you go and listen to that on your own and and see the bizarre things that Peter Josephs ends up arguing in order to try to make his point, which is, I think, clearly self-evidently false, that uh, he even goes on at one point to say that birds do not instinctually build nests, that they are somehow conditioned to do so. I, I, all sorts of just bizarre non-sequiturs like that. So, again, a lot of these things hinge on our idea of nature, the state of nature, and where where we can build these fundamental concepts of these overarching systems of government or even anarchy if that's what we want well for those people out there who are waiting for me to give my own postulation of the state of nature and to build my own philosophy from it well you'll have to wait a little bit longer because the point of this philosophy of freedom series is every bit as much to educate the listeners as it is to educate myself and to try to reason some of these things out and we are going to be building upon the these concepts and looking at some of the great thinkers who have gone before us and we do stand on the shoulders of giants. So I am really just trying to get my bearings and to try to get an overall understanding of the large scope of history. And as a very, very lengthy episode like this one indicates, it's extremely, extremely difficult to even begin looking at these issues, let alone getting into them in great depth. So we will continue getting into issues like this in the Philosophy of Freedom episodes of this podcast, and there will be more in the future, so stay tuned for those. In the meantime, I can say that I am 
I guess, backing into my philosophical beliefs by basically negating those things which I know not to be true, or know to not be true, should I say. And I can say quite unequivocally that I am not a utopian, and that I do not believe that there is no such thing as good people and bad people. I think there are good people and bad people, and that's uh, something that we have to deal with as part of the natural condition. I also believe that we cannot take the Enlightenment ideals at face value. I think that uh, humans cannot ever become or or certainly are not at this time perfectly logical and rational beings i think there are unconscious drives and things going on underneath the surface that we will never really be able to directly understand or control and i think we have to deal with that as part of human nature i think uh, utopianism of various kinds are very very dangerous and tend to end up in greater tyrannies than outright tyranny such as the advocation of some sort of absolute monarchy because at least there it's on its face and we all know what it is but tyrannies of good intentions tend to be even worse so again in this state of great flux and on a state of great uncertainty we'll have to end things here but as always the promise from me is to continue trying to find more answers and trying to dig into the history of this philosophy of freedom. And I think that I hope that the listeners out there will be able to fulfill their end of the bargain by continuing this research on your own and, well, sharing it with me and sharing it with others, because that's the only way we will be able to progress in this giant conversation that is human civilization. And on that grandiose note, I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you very much for joining me for this episode of The Corbett Report and asking you to join me again next Saturday for another edition. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report 2009 Video Archive. Buy your copy today at corbettreport.com.